Today's sermon text is found on page 909 of the Pew Bible, Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. You may be seated. Let's begin with another quick word of prayer. Holy God, we come before you in humility and earnestness that we want to walk with you all the days of our life. And we know that within your word are the very words of life come to give us life in them is wisdom for any circumstance so please encourage us, strengthen us, form us for this one that you have for us. And may you do this by the power of your spirit as we walk in him, as we are filled by him. Pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. I want to begin by playing a game. Begin by playing a game. And it's which one of these is not like the other. When you have three little kids at home, your games become very juvenile. So we're playing a kid game this morning, and we're going to be um, looking at the Apostles' Creed when we say which one of these is not like the other. Again, the Apostles' Creed is one of the great historic confessions of faith of the Christian church. Uh, Christians have been saying it for literally 1,500 years, and it encapsulates what we believe is most central about what we believe. That's why we confess it together. And so it goes over who is God. It begins, first, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. It's a wonderful, succinct confession about who God the Father is. He is the creator of everything that is. He is almighty and all-powerful. He's Father. Second, it goes on and tells us who Jesus Christ is, the Son of God. God the Father, God the Son. And in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. <clears throat> he descended to the dead. The third day, he rose again from the dead. And he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. It's an even better description of who God the Son is. It gets into all the major things he did, his birth, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the fact that he's coming back. Most of the Apostles' Creed is given to who God the Son is. Now let's, but again, we are a triune people. Let's look at what it says about the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. 
which one of these is not like the other? There's some humor here and some irony because it's indicative of what is a pretty uh, universal weakness within many Protestant Western churches. And that is that we believe in the Trinity. We believe that God, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, but we don't really know what to do with him. He makes us uncomfortable. And so we just say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and then we move on as quickly as we can before things get weird. But as I've said before, the Holy Spirit is the defining person of God for the age that we live in. It's how God is at work until Jesus comes back. And while the Apostles' Creed, now here's the thing about the Apostles' Creed, it's not wrong. That's why we still confess it fully. It's just incomplete. Because although the Apostles' Creed doesn't say much about the Holy Spirit, the Bible says a lot about the Holy Spirit. And in fact, the birth of Pentecostalism a little over 100 years ago has done a great service to the church because it's forced us to begin to think about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And we can, we can learn from the emphasis of our Pentecostal brothers and sisters while yet avoiding some of the excesses and weaknesses of Pentecostalism. For at the end of the day, we, we ignore the work and the presence of the Spirit only at the cost of our own spiritual vitality and health. Let me say it again. We ignore the work and the person of the Holy Spirit only at the expense of our own spiritual vitality and health. And I tell you what, I think one of the reasons that the witness of the American church is so blunted is because we so little walk by the Spirit. So what we are looking at this morning is of massive importance because the text that we read this morning is the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the coming of the Holy Spirit. God the Father had promised he would pour out his Spirit on all flesh. He had promised it hundreds of years before and it's finally coming to fruition here in our text this morning. God pours out his Holy Spirit and as a result, the church is born. And we'll see a glimpse of that church actually in a couple of weeks when we look at the end of chapter two. Now, because the Holy Spirit is such a fundamental reality for the Christian, because it's such a predominant theme without the book of, throughout the book of Acts, I want to do something a little bit different this morning. Now, in the first point, we're going to look at the text and exegete it and try to understand it. But in our second two points, I want to do a little bit more of a systematic explanation of who the Holy Spirit is. Because again, I think most of us are, you know, we believe in the Holy Spirit and that's about as far as it goes. And although the Holy Spirit is such a dominant figure in the book of Acts, there's never a place where it really explains all that he is and all that he does. And so before we begin this book of Acts, it might be helpful to, again, just take a little bit more of a systematic approach. So our outline for us this morning is gonna be first the baptism of the Spirit. And this is looking at verses one to 13, which is what that is. It's the outpouring of the Spirit. But then we're going to answer two questions in point two and three. And the first one is, what does the Spirit do in our lives? And the second question, which would be point three, is how do we walk by the Spirit? So the baptism of the Spirit, what does the Spirit do in our lives, and how do we walk by the Spirit? So first point, the baptism of the Spirit. Please follow along as I read verses one to four again for us. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of, of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So it tells us the entire Christian community, we were told there are about 120 members, they're all gathered in one place. 
What are they doing? Well, they're almost certainly praying. I mean, we're told that again back in chapter one, that they were all with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. That's what they're doing these 10 days between Jesus' ascension and Pentecost. And so in the midst of this church-wide prayer meeting, all of a sudden the Spirit is poured out. Now it says it happens on Pentecost. Just to give some background, what is the day of Pentecost? It was one of the Jewish feasts that Jews were commanded to uh, um, celebrate in the Old Testament. It was the Feast of the Harvest. So it came in the end of harvest and it's supposed to celebrate God for his provision of harvest. And so why God sends the Spirit on Pentecost is not clear. It's called, and it's called Pentecost, by the way, because it's, it's 50 days after the Passover, Pentecost. Why God sends the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, is it because it's, again, God faithfully answering his promises? We don't, we don't know. But it, it's told, this all happens on the day of Pentecost. And there are two aspects of the day of Pentecost that I want us to note for us this morning. The first one are these very obvious physical supernatural phenomena that demonstrate that the Spirit has been poured out. And this is the part that we kind of notice right away because it's unusual. Again, these are physical but also supernatural phenomena. And the first is this great sound, like a rushing wind. This doesn't, it's not an actual wind. It's just a sound like a wind if you've ever been in a great storm. If you were here in Louisville last spring, we had at least one instance where there was a tornado warning. Uh, if you were on campus, you were supposed to leave your dorms, I guess, and go to like a basement somewhere. It was a big deal. On that night, Mark and I were woken up around midnight by a gust of wind that literally shook our home. Never felt anything like that before in my life. Uh, every window was like rattling. And I found out afterwards that that storm system went right over our neighborhood. And, so there, were, and there was like cyclone. I don't know if any tornadoes touched down, but there was actual like circular clouds forming. It was a big deal. <clears throat> when you feel that kind of wind, you feel... I mean, it's so powerful, it's scary. And I think that's what's being communicated here. Jesus had told his disciples, you will receive power when the Spirit comes upon you. And so the first thing to come is a sound like wind that's communicating power. The second to come are these tongues of fire. Again, it's not actual fire. It says it's like fire. And why, are, you know, why they look like fire it doesn't tell us. Maybe it's getting at the refining work of the Spirit but what's significant is that one of these rests on each of the people in the church, in the building. Again, the Spirit is being poured out on everybody. It's not being poured out on the apostles or just teachers or just who, everybody the Spirit is poured out on. And then third, and, and what is given the most attention here is that they are given the miraculous ability to speak in tongues. And what seems to be going on here is that the apostles are able to speak in, in, in their own language, but those who hear them are hearing it in their own heart language. So they're hearing it in you know, Parthian and, and whatever all, all the other you know, languages are. Later in the New Testament, there's mention of the gift of tongues, and it seems to be used a little bit differently. It seems to be more referring to maybe some kind of angelic language, and there's debate on whether this tongues is the same as what Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians. I'm not gonna get into that. What I will say is that here, the apostles are speaking known languages that can be understood. And, and, and whenever we get to other parts in Acts where it talks about the gift of tongues, that's what we should assume is happening as well because it's the same author and he's already defined what this is. And we have to ask, okay, why the gift of tongues? Of all the miracles God could have sent to birth his church with, I mean, he could have given them the power to 
heal or the power to walk on water. I mean, the power to fly. I feel like that would get people's attention. But he gives them the, the gift of tongues. And of course, the reason is because he's empowering them for the mission he has for them. If you ever spend time with a missionary, you'll know one of the most frustrating aspects of mission work, international missions work, is language barriers. You can spend four years or more trying to learn a language, studying as best you can, and yet still find yourself sharing the gospel, stumbling for the right word, not understanding what they're being said, not being able to communicate the most precious news we have to communicate. Incredibly frustrating. And so God allows the church just to jump over this hurdle and gives them the ability to speak in the heart languages of all these people, the gospel, and all its truth and beauty and goodness. Again, we see the centrality of the mission that Jesus has given to the church to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so he gives us, gives us gift that allows him to do that. So that's the first aspect to notice is these three physical, supernatural phenomena. But the second aspect to notice on the day of Pentecost is that these miraculous gifts of the Spirit, they draw a very international crowd. Let's, let's look at verses 5 to 12 again. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and the residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. So Luke tells us there are devout Jews, men of God, proselytes, from across what have been the known worlds. And this is the Mediterranean world. And, and, and when he lists all these places, it doesn't make any sense to us, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What Luke is doing is he's going across the Mediterranean world, east to west. So he's beginning to be on your side. So being basically in residents of modern-day Iraq and Iran, and then residents in Israel, and then residents in Turkey, residents in Egypt, residents in Rome. So he's doing, he's working his way across what would have been the known world at that time, the Mediterranean world. And he's saying there are people from across the spectrum, different ethnicities, different languages, different nationalities. This is an international community that the Spirit is, is, is descending upon. And once again, Luke is emphasizing to us, as he emphasized throughout the Gospel of Luke, as he will continue to emphasize throughout the book of Acts, that the kingdom of God is a multi-ethnic, multinational reality. It's made up of every tribe, tongue, and nation. The Spirit here is uniting what sin divides. All the divisions we have in humanity that divide us, not that make us different, differences are fine, but the things that divide us that lead to racism and ethnocentrism, that lead to genocide and war and hatred, most basically come down to sin. Sin divides. It divides us from God. It divides us from one another. It even divides us from ourselves. That's why we oftentimes don't understand our own hearts. And here the Spirit is bringing unity. 
And in fact, it's bridging one of the most basic and difficult divides among people, which is language. I mean, you know, if you ever tried to talk to someone who doesn't speak any English and you don't speak any of their language, it is incredibly frustrating. You feel like a two-year-old. You're like, uh, uh, uh. No relationship is possible. But the Spirit overcomes that divide. Uh, Biblical commentaries literally since the second century have pointed out that what seems to be going on here is a dramatic and intentional reversal of the Tower of Babel. If you're familiar with that story, it's in Genesis 11, the um, people of the earth are building a tower out of their arrogance and pride to reach to heaven, and so God goes down and confuses the language, which prevents them from being able to cooperate. And here we see the reversal of that. At Babel, language was created as a barrier to cooperation. But here that language is, that, that barrier is overcome. Likewise, at Babel, it was mankind, humanity, and its arrogance reaching up to God, and at Pentecost, we see God and his humility reaching down to us. But the significance of this whole passage, and again, uh, this is primarily what I want to communicate in this first point, is that the Holy Spirit has come. The baptism of the Spirit has come. It was predicted in Luke 3 when John said, the one who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What was prophesied in Joel, that God will one day pour out his Spirit on all flesh. That's come. And what that means, Peter is going to get at in his sermon, which Jack will preach on next week. But basically, not to steal all of Jack's thunder, but it means that the Messiah has come and is present, and therefore salvation is offered in his name. What are you going to do about it? So that's what Jack's going to look at next week in a lot more depth. But again, since the Holy Spirit will be such a central figure in the book of Acts, and since she is such a central figure in the life of a Christian, I want to take a little time and do a systematic exploration of who the Spirit is in our second and third point. So first point, again, this is just, we see the Spirit has come. The promise of the Father has come. He promised he would send out a Spirit, and it's happened. So what does the Spirit do in our lives? That's the first question we're going to answer in the second point. What does the Spirit do in our lives? And actually, before I even answer that question, I'm going to make two preliminary observations about the Holy Spirit that we just want to keep in mind. And the first preliminary observation is that the Holy Spirit is not an energy force. Oftentimes, we will speak of the Spirit as power, strength, as almost some kind of like energy force. Or even more, we'll speak of the Holy Spirit as an it. God the Father is a person, God the Son is a person, but the Spirit is this weird energy force. And it's just not true. The Holy Spirit is just as much a person of the Trinity as God the Father is and God the Son is. He's just as much a personal being as God the Father and God the Son. The King James Version has not done us any favors by translating this as the Holy Ghost. For centuries, little boys and girls have grown up thinking the Holy Spirit is this haunted, creepy figure that runs around in a sheet. But because the Holy Spirit is a person of God, it means that we commune and we pray to the Holy Spirit in the same way we commune with and pray to God the Father and God the Son. If you're anything like me, that may seem very strange, but again, that's the weakness of our own theological tradition. That's what the Bible teaches us. So that's just first preliminary observation. The Holy Spirit is not an energy force. He is a person. So let's speak of him as a person. He is a he, not an it. We can pray to the Spirit. But second, the Spirit is poured out on every believer, and his presence is permanent. And this is one area where traditional Pentecostalism got it wrong. They looked at 
Acts 2 is normative for every Christian life. And they didn't recognize that in Acts 1 and 2 we have a unique event that's not repeatable. The Holy Spirit is poured out once. The promise of the Father is answered once for all time. And so you had this unique instance in Acts 1 where you had followers of Jesus who believed in the resurrection but the Spirit hasn't been poured out yet. And so Pentecostal solves and said, oh, well, every Christian, therefore, must be saved and then have a second experience of the baptism of the Holy Spirit because they were trying to read Acts 1 and 2, but they were misreading it. Every Christian is baptized into the Spirit. When we confess our sins and turn to Christ in faith, he pours the Spirit into our hearts. And that Spirit is a permanent possession. And we know that because Christ has promised us that. He says he'll be with us always. But Christ himself has ascended into heaven. He's with us by his Spirit. Now, the power of the Spirit may wax and wane in our lives based on various factors, but His presence is always with us. So those are the two preliminary observations, but here, what does the Spirit do in our life? When we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit, how does that actually make any difference? Well, the first thing, I have three things. The first thing the Spirit does in our life is He gives spiritual life. John chapter three, verses five to six. Jesus replied, I assure you that no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. To become a Christian is not a sociological event. It's not a biological event. It's not something that someone else can do for you or something that we can do ourselves. It is a supernatural event, a spiritual event. It's a work that the Holy Spirit does, and the Spirit does it in two different ways. First, he brings conviction of sin, our sin, and God's righteousness. Again, in John 16, 8, Jesus tells us that when he comes, it's referring to the Spirit, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And this is exactly what happens in Acts 2. When Peter preaches and explains what the the sending of the Spirit means, which it means that, hey, by the way, this guy you murdered, he was the Messiah, they're cut to the heart. Says in, in chapter 2, verse 37, and when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brother, what shall we do? Only the Spirit can bring that kind of conviction over our sin and God's righteousness and why that puts us in a bad place. But the work of the Spirit in bringing spiritual life doesn't end there, that's just where it begins. But then also the work of the Spirit is then also to help us understand and to know and to believe that though we are desperate sinners, God in his great kindness has made a way for us to be forgiven. And that's by sending his own son to die for us. In 1 Corinthians 2.12, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, including his salvation. These are things that we can't just believe intellectually, The Spirit convinces us of it. The yeah, we're sinners, but God's grace is enough for us and his mercies has covered us. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. What we could say is that the ground of our salvation, the reason God can forgive us is the work of Jesus on the cross. That's why God can be just and the justifier. But the application of our salvation, making it operational in our lives, that is the work of the Spirit, who takes these truths and all of a sudden makes them real to us so that we believe them with all our hearts and transforms us. And by the way, just as a side note, this helps us explain a little bit the mystery of belief. Why is it that we share the gospel with some and 
and it clicks and they believe it and their lives are transformed and they walk with Jesus and you share with other people and they're just like, nah, I don't believe it. It's not a matter of education. Right? There, there are Christians and non-Christians at every educational level. It's not a matter of wealth. There are wealthy Christians and poor Christians. It's not a matter of ethnicity. There are black Christians and white Christians and Chinese Christians. It's because it's the work of the Spirit. Only the Spirit can do that kind of work in our hearts. All of us have friends and family members and coworkers and neighbors who don't know Christ. And we love them and we want them to know the Jesus that we know. We want them to know the forgiveness that we've known. How do we pray for them? We pray to the Spirit. Because the Spirit is the one who opens eyes. The Spirit is the one who brings that kind of conviction. So that's the first thing the Spirit does. The Spirit brings spiritual life. But second, the Spirit sanctifies us. The Spirit doesn't just bring life at one, you know, I mean, the new birth is a single event. But the Spirit is also the one who works in the life of a Christian to make us like Jesus. This is what Galatians 5, to 23 gets at. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And when we look at these attributes, the first thing we should realize is that only Jesus exhibited all of these. When we look at the person that the fruits of the Spirit is pointing to, we're looking at Christ. And so the fruit of the Spirit, or the effect of the Spirit, the work he brings in our life is to make us more like Christ. And this is what the Spirit does. And again, the Spirit sanctifies us. He makes us like Jesus through two steps. First is a negative step, the step of repentance. This is what Paul describes in Colossians 3.9 where he says, put off the old self and the practices that go with it. Uh, to use Dallas Willard's phrase, he says that the, the, the person who's separated from God, they're a ruined soul and rebelling against God. And there are certain practices and habits and understandings that go with a ruined soul. Pride and egotism and vanity and jealousy and a tendency to focus on self. The first step of sanctification, Paul tells us, through the Spirit is we put that off. In fact, he's even more explicit later in Colossians. He says, kill it, crucify it, put it to death. When we, when we, when we use the language that the Spirit sanctifies us, or sorry, when we use the language that the Spirit refines us, the metaphor we're looking at is, is when you want to, you know, when you, when you mine gold out of the earth, I've never actually done this, right? And just assume, you know, this is what I've read. When you mine gold, it's not very pure. It's gold mixed with other elements. And so to purify it, to make it a, a, a more valuable kind of gold, you melt it down, and when it melts, the impurities are able to separate from the gold. They rise to the top, and then you can skim off that. And you have a pure gold afterwards. That's the metaphor of refinement. And so when the Spirit is refining us, what he's doing is he's bringing us into places where we see our sin. He's bringing the sin that is in us, and he's bringing it to the surface so that we might then put it off. Whether he's using difficult circumstances that bring out the ugliness that we didn't know was there, or it's so that we might put that off. But that's just the first step of sanctification by the Spirit. The second step is to put on in its place. We put off the old self with its habits and its practices, but then again, continuing Colossians 3.12, in its place we put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, 
so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. This is how we grow in Christ-likeness. We put off and we put on. And here's the deal. That is a work we can only do through and by and in the Spirit of God because it is a supernatural work. And if we try to do that in our own strength, we're gonna do one of two things. Let me put it this way. We're gonna fail in one of two ways. We're gonna fail honestly, potentially, which is when we just realize we're, we're so un, incapable of putting off and putting on. We just go discouraged and we give up. That's an honest failure because we recognize what's going on. We could also fail dishonestly, which is typically what self-righteousness is, whereas we learn that there are some things that are obvious and we figure out how to put those off, but we haven't addressed any of what's going on in the heart and so we've convinced ourselves we're really righteous, but really it's just a sham. And we're still failing, but we're failing dishonestly at that point. We can only do this by relying on the strength of the Holy Spirit, walking in him, relying upon his strength. So the Spirit, he gives new life. The Spirit sanctifies us through the steps of putting off and putting on. But third, the Holy Spirit empowers us for mission. And on the day of Pentecost, this is the, the work of the Spirit that is front and center. He empowers the apostles for the mission that he's given to them, which is to bear witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How does he do that in Acts 2? Well, he takes Peter, uh, who had the um, distinction of being the only Christian in the Bible who denied his Lord three times on the night of his betrayal because he was afraid of what would happen to him. It's an unfortunate distinction to have. And we see this same Peter who out of fear and cowardice denied his Lord three times. 50 days later, standing in the middle of the city where his Lord was condemned, proclaiming this Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the one you killed as the Messiah of God and their salvation in him. And a couple chapters later, Peter, again, this man who denied his Lord three times because of his fear, is gonna stand in front of the very religious council that condemned Jesus and had him put to death, who are now, who are now uh, uh, threatening Peter with a similar thing, and he's gonna tell them, I can only do what God has called me to do. I will preach Jesus Christ, come what may. What brings about that kind of change in a person? That's the Holy Spirit. Uh, in a former job, I was a job recruiter, which means I interviewed a lot of people uh, to hire them for various positions. And one of the things we always said is that the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. So you, you're interviewing someone, and uh, if they have been lazy and competent and irresponsible in the past, they're probably gonna be lazy and competent and irresponsible in the future, don't hire them. And so the questions we're answering is, hey, tell me about a time when, you know, uh, you had to be creative at job, or tell me how you're detail-oriented, or what that's looked like, or how, we're trying to figure out what have you been in the past, because that's the best predictor of what you're gonna be like in the future. But here's Peter. His past behavior was one of cowardice and fear, saving himself, radically changed though. Again, who does that? Oh, that's the Spirit. Empowering Peter to proclaim boldly. You don't, you don't have to be afraid to tell people about Jesus Christ. 
all of us are afraid to do that. It's putting ourselves in a position where we could be hurt, we could be made fun of, we could say the wrong thing. You don't have to be afraid because the Spirit is with you. And if you can do this kind of a work in Peter, he'll do it in yours as well. The Spirit empowers us for mission. So the three things the Spirit does, again, he gives spiritual life, he sanctifies us, he helps us grow into Christ-likeness, and he empowers us for the mission that Jesus Christ has given to us. Okay, so application question, considering, and by the way, those are three major things the Spirit does, but the Spirit does many other things, but considering even just these three major things the Spirit does, here's my question for you. What role does the Spirit play in your daily discipleship? And if you're anything like me, the answer is probably not much of anything. Because again, we believe in the Holy Spirit and that's about as far as it goes. And that ought to be a major red flag as we think through the health of our own discipleship because in Scripture it commands us to be filled with the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in Galatians 5.16, walk by the Spirit. Now, whatever those may mean, at the very least, it's got to mean that the Spirit's got to play a central part in our daily discipleship. And in fact, even beyond these explicit commands to be filled with the Spirit and to walk by the Spirit, the New Testament model given to us for how to live is that we do everything in, through, by, with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus Christ, in his earthly ministry, he rejoiced, and where did he, re- where did he find that joy? Well, Luke 10, 21, he rejoiced in the Spirit. Jesus, who went through all kinds of difficulties and hardships, just like you and I, and yet he found joy. Where was that joy? It was in the Spirit. Similarly, Paul, in his missionary journeys in Acts 19, 21, as he's deciding where he's going to go, he's directed by, he makes his decisions in the Holy Spirit. He follows the guidance of the Spirit and where to go on his missionary journeys. Romans 5, 5 tells us that God's love is poured into our hearts through the Spirit of God. How do we come to know the transformative, life-altering, cataclysmic good news that you're a child of God and the God who created the world loves you? The Spirit takes that and pushes it in our heart. Galatians 3, 2 to 3 tells us that just as we began our life in the Spirit, again, spiritual life is brought about by the Spirit. New birth is by the Spirit, just as we began in the Spirit. So we must continue in the Spirit. All of our life is to be lived in the Spirit. That's why I said it's much more than those three things. The Spirit is the presence of God for us until Christ returns. He has ascended. Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father Almighty advocating for us. He's in our corner. And in his place, he sent us his spirit. So he does everything in the life of a Christian. And that's why if we ignore the person and the work of the spirit only at our great spiritual peril because then we are ignoring the main way that God is at work in this world until Jesus comes back. We live in the era of the Holy Spirit. The Christian walks closely with Christ through the spirit by being filled with the spirit, by doing everything in the spirit. And this brings us I think very naturally to our third point and our second question, which is how do we walk by the Spirit? Okay, 
if, if, if the Spirit is, is the active presence of God in the life of a believer, if he does all these things in the life of the believer, well, how do I walk by the Spirit? If I'm commanded to walk by the Spirit, if I'm commanded to be filled with the Spirit, how do I do that? And that's our third and final point. How do we walk by the Spirit? I'm going to be honest with you. I am still very much learning this. I think my second point, I can just read the Bible and tell you all these things. It, 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 it's very clear. The Spirit is, is very active in the life of a believer. It does many things in our lives. But when we get to walking by the Spirit, what does it mean to actually walk in fellowship with the Spirit? Again, because of my, the weaknesses of my own background, that this was not something that was emphasized in my Protestant Bible, non-denominational background. I think I'm still learning this, and I think in 10 years I'd probably be able to preach this third point better than I will this morning. But I'm going to do my best, and I hope it's helpful. But there's two practical suggestions I have for us as we seek to walk by the Spirit. And the first suggestion is first, daily reorientation. I'll say it again, daily reorientation. Apart from the work of the Spirit, the natural tendency of the human heart is towards the flesh. It's towards that old self that we're trying to put off with all its practices and habits. That's the, that's the tendency. It's, uh, it's, it's like this. Um, my old house, we had a much bigger yard, and I spent, I don't even know, hundreds of hours and more than hundreds of dollars probably trying to grow a good yard. Because if you, it's funny, grass is a weed. Did you know that? But it is the most pathetic weed in the world because it cannot grow on its own. If you let a yard just go, it will not be a lush green lawn. That is not the tendency that a lawn goes to. It goes towards all the other kinds of weeds that are frankly much more powerful. The same way with our, with our walk in the spirit. If, if you think, well, in my walk with Christ, I'm standing still. You're not. You're falling back. There's one of two directions we can take. It's either we're, we're reorienting ourselves toward life in the Spirit, or we're falling towards the flesh and the old self. And so the first practical suggestion is we need to daily reorient ourselves because the inclination is the other way. We need to wake up every morning and deny our own desires and reorient ourselves back to the Spirit by praying to the Spirit today, not my will, yours. Not my will, but yours be done. And the more specific we make that prayer, the more transformative that is to our hearts. So we wake up in the morning and we pray through our marriages and our families and our friendships and the various relationships God has put in our life. We go through each one of them and we say, Spirit, not my will, but yours be done. Not what I want, but what you want. We pray through our jobs and our studies or whatever God has given for you to do with your time. Not my will, but yours be done. We pray through our fears and our anxieties, our frustrations and our sadness. Spirit, not my will, but yours be done. And here's the thing. When we pray that to the Spirit, when we deny ourselves not my will, but yours. In return, the Spirit gives us his fruit. Love, joy, peace, 
what could we possibly give up that could compare with the love of God and the joy of God and the peace of God? So we walk by the Spirit first by daily reorienting ourselves to Him and for His purposes. Not my will, but yours. And He gives us His fruit. An easy application for this, you know, we, we f- always finish our service with a moment of, of silent reflection. The reason we do that is, is we never want to hear God's word and then just walk away and forget it. But we want to do it the honor it's due by bringing it into our hearts. And so one easy application is when we have that time of reflection, reorient yourself to the spirit. Whatever is weighing on your heart and mind this morning, whatever you're thinking about and it's taking up all your emotional and intellectual bandwidth, offer that up to the Spirit. Say, not my will, but yours. So that's the first daily reorientation. Second practical suggestion for how do we walk in the Spirit is regular participation in ordinary discipleship. Regular participation in ordinary discipleship. Jesus tells us in John 3 that the Spirit is kind of like the wind. You hear it come, you, you see it do its work, but you, don't, you can't predict it. You don't know really when it's gonna come. You don't know where it goes. There's some mystery to how the Spirit works. But that being said, there are certain avenues down which the Spirit tends to walk. And if we wanna walk by the Spirit, we ourselves will also walk down those avenues. And if we do, we will find that we are walking by the Spirit. And these avenues are typically what we refer to as spiritual disciplines. These are activities that Christians throughout the centuries of the church have found to be dependable avenues to meet the Spirit in, to encounter the Spirit. And the first and most important of these avenues or these spiritual disciplines is, of course, Scripture and prayer together. They're never meant to be apart. We read the Scripture prayerfully. We pray scripturally. But the reason why scripture is first and foremost is that scripture, you know, we, we joke as, you know, good Baptists, we believe in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures, and that's obviously not what we believe. But we do believe that there's something fundamentally unique about the Holy Scriptures that's bound up in the being of God in a unique way that is not true about anything else. Not to get super technical here, but what is the Scriptures? The Scriptures is God the Father speaking the Word, the Son of God, as his breath, the Spirit, The scriptures are Trinitarian. They're bound up in the being of God. And so when we come to scriptures, it's not just that the Holy Spirit has inspired these men and women, these authors of the Bible, but that as we read the scriptures, the Spirit takes these truths and these words and these meanings and begins to bring it into the deep parts of our spirit, the sources of of who we really are. It begins to transform us. leads to a deep renovation of the heart. Again, this putting off the old self and putting on the new. And this avenue of the Spirit, this, the, the Scriptures, it's not only central to how the Spirit works, but it's also what we call normative, which means that the Spirit will work outside of the Scriptures. The Spirit can work in many ways, but He will never contradict what He has revealed to us in the Scriptures. And second, the only way we can know with full confidence what the Spirit wants is by what is said in the Scriptures. It is a normative avenue of the Spirit's work for the Christian. So that's the first and most important spiritual discipline, scripture and prayer. 
But other ones, we look at Christian fellowship, the church. Christians have just found throughout the centuries it's just easier to encounter the Spirit of God when we do it with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We should never overlook the fact that Pentecost came when? When they were gathered, all of them, in one place. And the Holy Spirit was poured out. You get other disciplines like silence and solitude, um, fasting, service, evangelism. These are all just very a- various avenues that the Spirit of God walks down that he uses to enable us to put off the old self and to put on the, the new self. And there's nothing formulaic about these. There's no magical incantation. It's not like every time you open the scriptures, the heavens part and the Spirit descends as a dove. It's not as if every time you come to worship with your brothers and sisters, it's as if you see the eternal, universal church worshiping the hallelujah chorus. But these are avenues the Spirit has been known to walk down, and if we want to walk by Him, we'll walk down those avenues too. So again, two practical suggestions, daily reorientation, and second, regular participation in the ordinary uh, spiritual disciplines. So in summary, the Holy Spirit has come. That's what this chapter two is telling us. That's what Pentecost is telling us. The Holy Spirit has come. And he does three things. He gives us spiritual life. He sanctifies us. And he empowers us for the mission that Christ has called us to do. The reason the Spirit is so central in the life of a Christian is that he is the presence of God among us until Christ comes back. He is the one who does God's work among us until Jesus returns for the second time. And so we're called to be filled by him, to walk in the spirit, to do everything in our life in, by, with, among the spirit of God. And so if you're a Christian this morning, whatever your week may look like, whatever may be coming down the pike for you, you can know that the spirit of God is with you, that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, The living God walks with you. So reorient yourself to his will and he will renew you and transform you to look more and more like Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, help us to be a people who are a people who walk by you, in you, by your power. We confess we're so easily deceived by human strength and our own abilities. But in reality, we are capable of almost nothing of eternal worth apart from your Spirit's empowering presence. May you bring new life. May you sanctify us and empower us to put off the old self and put on the new, to walk more closely in the image of our Lord. And may you pour yourself out on us that we might step out in the mission you've given to us, that we might share Christ with joy and earnestness and courage wherever and however you have given us the opportunity to. Holy Spirit, may we do all of our life in you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.